Hi there, and welcome to the media ministry of River Bible Church. I'm Pastor Dustin Daniels, inviting you to visit our website to download today's sermon notes. You can sign up for our newsletter and also submit a prayer request. We would love to pray for you and answer any questions that you may have. For more information, visit riverbible.org. Now let's open up the Word of God together for today's message. Well, if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4 today, as we continue our study in the, uh, in the Gospel of, of Matthew, verse by verse, we're in the second temptation today. If you don't have a Bible, we got Bibles in the back there for you by the, the AV booth. And as you turn there, let me review from the last couple of weeks. We started studying the temptations of Jesus several weeks ago. And we saw how Jesus was baptized and confirmed and then ordained into formal ministry, and then how the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And we studied Hebrews 4.15 last, last Sunday. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, no, no. We have Jesus. Jesus is our high priest who has been tempted in every single way, in every way that we are, and yet he is still without sin. See, and we ask this question. Have you ever wondered how Jesus was tempted in every single way like we are? Was, was Jesus truly tempted with anger and lust? Was Jesus tempted with laziness and drugs and depression? That's a legitimate question, right? Because Scripture says yes, but how? Because we, we, we see that the Gospels only give us three of Jesus' temptations. And what we're learning here from this narrative is that Jesus chose these three specific temptations with the Gospel writers because they represent every other type of temptation. These three temptations of Jesus, they point to the very root of every other kind of temptation that you and I experience. So if we can understand these three temptations from Jesus, we'll begin to understand our own. And not only that, but how do we overcome our own temptations by looking at this passage? Well, the Apostle John provides more clarity in 1 John 2.15, and I, I did want to show you this before we dived into math, dove into Matthew. Uh, the Apostle John says this. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, well, the love of the Father is not in him. So as Christians, we are not to love. We are not to agape the world, uh, meaning the world order, the cosmos, the, the world systems. We're not to love the world's values or their beliefs or their morals. As Christians, we don't live by the world's standards, do we? The ever-changing standards. What specifically do you think John is referring to here in, in verse 15? He says, he elaborates in verse 16. He says, for everything in the world, and then he gives us three things. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions. That's, that's, all that's not from the Father. It's from the world. And when we understand that every sin that we commit 
it springs forth from one of these temptations. We can learn how to, to navigate uh, the temptations bi biblically. When we do that, we can eliminate a lot of the sin in our life. So last Sunday, we looked at Jesus' first temptation, and the Apostle John says this. Once again, in verse 16, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh. Well, Jesus' first temptation dealt with the lust of his flesh. Now, don't let that word lust um, throw you off there. It's, it's not being used as a sexual term. For all of you note takers, write in your Bible, desire. These are desires. These are cravings that we have as human beings. So we saw Satan tempt Jesus into fulfilling his craving to eat. He was hungry. And on the surface, the temptation looked like it was all about food. But as we dove, deep in, uh, we dove into the deep end of the pool there, we, we saw how Jesus was being tempted to do three things. Number one, he was tempted to, to doubt the Father's word. He was tempted to question the Father's love. And number three, he was tempted to be suspicious inside the Father's provision. So the first temptation, it was to fulfill this fleshly craving, these desires, right, outside the will of God. When we're inside the will of God, there's a covering for us. Jesus was being tempted to step outside of that covering and fulfill that human desire apart from the Father's will. And we have the same temptation today, don't we? One-third of all of our temptations come to the root the root problem of bread. Will God provide? Will he provide for me? Am I going to have to make things happen? Am I going to have to knock down some doors? Am I going to trust God and his word? Or am I going to trust me? One third of all temptations come down to bread. That was temptation number one. Today we're going to study temptation number two, and the Apostle John calls this the lust or the cravings, the desires of our eyes. Scripture shows us how another one-third of all of our temptations deal with this conversation between Satan and Jesus. So how so? Well, let's find out. If you would, please stand for the reading and the honoring of God's Word. I'm going to start in chapter 3, verse 16, to give us the full context of the narrative here. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And then the tempter approached him and said, If you're the Son of God, we'll tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written that man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, well, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you're not going to strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus told him, It is also written, 
do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and he said to him, I will give you all of these things if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus told him, Go away, Satan. It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil left him, and the angels came and began to serve him. And that is the word of the Lord for River Bible Church this morning. Thank you, guys. Please have a seat. Let's take a deeper look here at verse 5. Then the devil took him, so that's Jesus, to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. So last Sunday, we talked about how Matthew writes this narrative in chronological order. Well, Matt focuses on what seems to be the last three of the many temptations that Luke mentions. So it's almost as if Satan was trying to wear Jesus down before he got to these final three. And we see that here with, with the adverb then. He says then. It's a transition word. In verse 5, then the devil took him. That phrase, the devil took him, that's kind of a, a mysterious phrase. Some people believe that it describes some type of visionary experience. And a case could be made for that. Uh, Jesus, having fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he's on the verge of starvation. He's not going to have a whole lot of energy to walk 10 to maybe 40 miles out of the desert into the city. Others believe it's better to interpret this verse literally. And a stronger case can be made for this from Scripture because that Greek word took, uh, it means to take alongside, it means to bring along. Uh, Matthew actually used that same word when Joseph took G uh, Jesus and Mary when they fled into Egypt in Matthew chapter 2, verse 14. So if we're going to interpret this, this passage literally, I started thinking about this. If they did walk, if Jesus and Satan walked 10 to 40 miles from the desert into the city, which probably took a day or two, what do you think they talked about? I don't think Jesus engaged in any conversation with the devil other than what he had to. But I can certainly see Satan running his mouth. I can spewing all sorts of twisted half-truths, continuing to wear Jesus down. Verse 5 says, Then the devil took him to the holy city. The holy city, that's Jerusalem. Uh, that title for the city is seen elsewhere in Scripture. We, we see it in the Old Testament with the book of Nehemiah, Isaiah. We see it here in Matthew. You'll also see it in the book of Revelation. Verse 5 continues, Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. So the pinnacle, it may have been a special place on this extended part of the roof that was kind of stretching out over the temple. A Jewish historian, his name was Josephus, he said that there was a 450-foot drop from top to bottom. That's 110 feet longer or we could say higher, than a football field. So this place, the pinnacle of the temple, it's a very special place. It's where the priest would sound the trumpet to call the crowd to worship. And we know this because 
An amazing archaeological discovery was made in 1969. Archaeologists, they, they found a stone that they believe was at the top of the temple. And it had uh, an inscription in Hebrew that, read, that said this. To the place of the trumpeting four. To the place of the trumpeting four. And then the, the stone was broke. Uh, in, all in all probability, the, the missing part of that stone probably read, for the priest. So, to the place of the trumpeting for the priest. So, it's this place. It's this, the top of the temple here. You're going to have a, a gorgeous view, and you're going to have a commanding view of all of Jerusalem. It's also an ideal location for Satan's second temptation. <laughs> so, this whole scene, it just oozes drama. Right? Jesus standing on this ledge and he's looking out over the entire city where millions of people live. And in verse 6, Satan says to Jesus, Jesus, if you're the son of God, well, just throw yourself down. For it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So, Last week in the, in the first temptation, Satan tried to expose a legitimate need that Jesus had. Jesus' physical body was on the brink of starvation. It already existed, that condition existed when, when Jesus, excuse me, when the devil showed up. But in this second temptation, Satan, he had to create a need here. And we see this in verse 6. He says, if you're the son of God, well, just throw yourself down. So in other words... Since you're the son of God, Jesus, and I know that you are, jump and prove it. I want you to prove it. So not only does Satan create the need, look what he does next. And this is wickedly brilliant. Satan picked up on Jesus' use of scripture to overcome the first temptation. Look what he does. He says in verse 6, it is written. He's going to give his angels orders concerning you, Jesus. They're going to support you with their hands. You're not even going to strike your foot against a stone. Satan quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. So in other words, Satan is saying, hmm, Jesus, I see you're a scholar of the Bible. Well, I just happen to be a theologian as well. I graduated from the University of Babylon. And I was just reading through the Psalms the other day, and I came across this verse, Psalm 91. And Satan quotes that verse to Jesus. So from Satan's perspective, it's, it's, you know, if Jesus lived only by the word of God, then Satan is going to confront Jesus with the word of God. So Satan, he's trying to back Jesus into a corner. He's trying to back him in with the actual foundation in which Jesus says he believes. So Satan was essentially saying something like this. Jesus, you've been, de you've been declared to be God's son. You claim to trust in his word, so you've got to prove it. And if you're not going to use your divine power to feed yourself, then why don't you let the Father use his divine power to help you? So in other words, Satan is talking trash about Jesus' father. I mean, that's quite the temptation to prove Satan wrong. Do you like people talking about your mommy and your data? No. 
What's really interesting here about the, the second temptation is that it's, it's, what G, it's what the Jews wanted all along. The Jews wanted Jesus to prove that he was indeed the Messiah. And by the way, many false messiahs did precisely that. There was a, a man named Thutis. He led a group of people from the temple to the Jordan River. And he promised he was going to split the waters just like Moses did with the Red Sea. He, of course, failed. He lost his following. Tradition holds that Simon the Magician, remember him? Acts chapter 8. Tradition says that Simon did exactly what Satan is tempting Jesus to do here. Simon jumped off the pinnacle of the temple. The good news is that the jump was spectacular. It was the landing that he had a problem with. So let's, let's really slow down here and, and ask a question. What's the real temptation in, in all of this? Well, well, Satan is tempting Jesus to be sensational. And most people love sensationalism. People want to be entertained, even in the church. Jesus himself tells us to be very, very careful here. If we fast forward to Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says this. He says, false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Wow. Now, the context here is the great tribulation, but it still applies here. Here's the problem with sensationalism. It doesn't produce faith. You would think it, it, it would, but it doesn't. And we know this because we see it time and time again in, in Scripture. Think about all the miracles that, that God performed through Moses. Um, it drove many of, those, of the Israelites to either presume on God or it, it hardened the hearts into greater disbelief. So let me give you one example. The Israelites, they're walking around the desert. They run out of water. They start freaking out. And they don't believe that God's going to provide. And this is after the splitting of the Red Sea. This is after God miraculously provides manna and quail to eat. And not only are the Israelites at this moment doubting God, they're all upset because all they have is manna to eat. They deserve better. So they think. And they tell Moses, Moses, you better give us water or we're going to kill you. Numbers 20 verse 10 Moses and Aaron summoned the assembly in front of the rock, and I love this. Moses said, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? Must we perform a, a magic show so that you'll believe that God will take care of us? And here's the amazing thing. Even in Moses' his anger, even in Israel's rebellion, God still provided that miracle. Water came from the rock, and the Israelites still didn't trust God. In the Gospels, we see the same thing. Jesus' miracles, most of the time, not every time, but most of the time, it hardened the opposition of his enemies. So even when God performed miracles, most people, most people now, a few did, most people did not respond in faith. What miracles do is they strengthen the faith of those who already believe. 
So Satan is tempting Jesus to be sensational here. And he says to Jesus in verse 6, he says, Jesus, if you're the son of God, we'll just throw, throw yourself down for it is written. Notice here how Satan mimics Jesus. He says, it is written. In other words, Jesus, this is why jumping off the temple is a good idea. Your scriptures say you can't get hurt. Isn't that the word of God? Isn't that what your Bible says? Let's see if the Bible's true, Jesus. Because, you know, I believe it. Do you believe it? I believe that God will save you. I believe that when you jump off, you're going to float down to the ground like some, some type of spiritual superhero. And then, it's only then the people will realize that you are the Messiah and people will start following you immediately. I mean, Jesus, what, what more proof do you need? People would love you after, after this. So my question, once again, is where's the temptation? What's the real temptation here? Well, last week we learned that these three temptations, they are unique because Jesus is unique. But that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't identify with our temptations. So how, here's the question. So how does the temptation of jumping off the temple, how does it correlate to our temptations today? Well, if Jesus throws himself down, it forces God the Father to protect him. Jesus would be demanding that the Father prove his love for him and provide supernatural care. And here's the thing. Satan uses scripture as his rationale. Satan is trying to convince Jesus with the Bible to jump. It's a, it's a sobering thought, isn't it? To realize that Satan not only knows scripture, but he knows it better than us. Last week, we said that for Satan to be a great deceiver, that he must also be a great false theologian. So when Satan quotes scripture, it's not to build up. It's to tear everybody down. Satan mishandles, he misapplies God's word here. Satan's hermeneutics were wrong when he quotes Psalm 91. Hermeneutics, it deals with the rules that govern how to interpret Scripture. Well, we can't just do whatever we want with Scripture. Um, and the first principle of biblical interpretation is called the analogy of faith. And all that means is that Scripture is its best own interpreter. Scripture interprets Scripture because God never contradicts himself. So in other words, the book of Judges, no matter how awful and horrifying that book is, it cannot and it will never contradict the book of Ephesians, as wonderful and glorious as that book is. So if we set one part of Scripture against another, what we do is we, we violate the most basic principle of biblical interpretation. And that's exactly what Satan is doing right here. Satan is quoting from Psalm 91. And the whole context of this psalm is trusting God. So let's read Psalm 91 for ourselves. And let's not take Satan's word for it. That's probably a never a good idea. Psalm 91.1. The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. So question, how does, our first question after we read that, how does one live under God's protection? How do we do that? 
And the short answer is, is we do it through faith. We do it through obedience to God's word. So we've got the context of Psalm 91 in verse 1. But let's see how Satan quotes verses 11 and 12. Look closely here. For he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all of your ways. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You see what, what Satan did in verse 11? Look at it again. He says, for he will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all of your ways. That's the full psalm. That's the full verse. Satan left something out, didn't he? He left out to protect you in all of your ways. Well, isn't that convenient? The context of Psalm 91 is that God promises to protect the righteous man in all of his righteous ways. So let me ask you, does, does jumping off the temple and then asking God to bless this kind of stupidity, does that sound like a really good thing that a righteous man is going to do? No. But when you pick and choose how you're going to use scripture, does it not become easier to interpret the passage? As if it were a promise from God to protect the righteous no matter what he does. And that's what Satan's doing. That's what happens when we misquote and we misapply scripture. We can make it say whatever we want. So how does Jesus respond to Satan's theological error here? Verse 7 Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. So Jesus is not going to play Satan's game with these hermeneutical gymnastics. He's not going to do that. Jesus will have no part of cheap, faithless sensationalism. Note here that Jesus says it is also written. It's also written, Satan. So in other words, Jesus, reading between the lines here, we could say, Satan, you know, you want me to test God, but you have to understand that God is not the one to be tested. I'm the one to be tested. And that means it's my responsibility not to doubt my father. I am to trust him. So the devil's diabolical mistake here really is intentionally trying to confuse how a righteous, God-fearing man accidentally struck his foot against a stone and he falls versus Jesus deliberately taking the plunge. Those two things are not the same. Satan has his theology backwards and he knows it. See, Jesus would not be trusting God to take that leap. He would be testing God. And that brings us to key point number one. We don't test God. God is the one who does the testing. We don't test God. God is the one who does the testing. God has already proven his love and his, his faithfulness by his son, Jesus. God has given us his son. Jesus walked out of the grave. We don't need any more proof than that. We don't need any more signs. We don't need new miracles to believe this. The signs and the miracles have already been given through Jesus. And what we need is faith. What we need is faith. To believe God in what he's already done on our behalf. Key point number two. Satan implied that God is trustworthy 
only when he rescues us from suffering and danger. Satan implies that God is trustworthy only when he rescues us from suffering and danger. And Satan, he saw through that. So Jesus knew better. He overcame temptation number two. You know, there really is so much to learn from this second temptation from Jesus. I want to give you two things here as we close. First, Jesus' entire life demonstrated the Father's glory, not his own. And really, I want to apply this thought to what the Apostle John says. Going back to 1 John 2.16, for everything in the world, you got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride in one's possessions. That is not from the Father. It's from the world. So we, we've got all these worldly lusts and these desires and, and these cravings to be noticed by others. Imagine the instant fame and the, and the notoriety that, that, J, that Jesus would have had that day. If he would have leapt off the, te, the temple, floated down to the ground like Satan uh, suggested here. Instant fame. It's part of the temptation for us too, isn't it? For Jesus, it was to bypass the cross and still wear the crown. And yet Jesus didn't come to be accepted. He came to be rejected. And he knows that. But we don't. Many times we fall into this temptation by wanting to be accepted by others ourselves. So... The root temptation here really is to steal God's glory and replace it with our own. We all have a God-given desire to display God's glory. Uh, As Christians, really, we have a duty to brag on Jesus and to brag on God and what God's doing in our lives. And the Apostle Paul says this. He confirms it in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And what Paul's doing here, he's paraphrasing the prophet Jeremiah. The whole passage says this. I wanted to show this to you. Jeremiah 9.24. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and he knows me. He knows me. He understands and knows me. He says, we're to boast that I'm the Lord proving that the Lord shows faithful love and justice and righteousness on the earth because God delights in all of these things. That's what we're supposed to boast of. God is who we're supposed to brag on. Apostle Paul says this in Galatians 6.14. He says, as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. The world has been crucified to me through the cross, and I to the world. Wow. Amen and amen. That's an amazing verse. The problem with it is that there's an unredeemed part of our lives that wants us to take this God-given glory, this, this desire to brag on him, and, and to twist it so that we can brag on ourselves. Really, it's, it's an act of self-promotion. There are some Christians who are really over the top with this. Uh, many YouTube preachers are this way too. 
But most of us, I think, we do it in, in subtle ways. So, for example, we're, we're at our weekly Bible study, and we just happen to throw in a few comments or a few verses just to glorify ourselves. And Satan loves this. He loves it. Much of today's self-promotion in the church is under the false pretense of Scripture. So be very, very careful with this. Brings us to key point number three. Test your motives, not God. Test your heart. Test your motives. Don't test God. And then secondly, we see truth and error at stake here, don't we? Uh, Jesus corrects Satan's error in, in mishandling God's word. So you and I, we too, we have an obligation to read and interpret Scripture correctly. We are to read the word of God by the Spirit of God. We are to listen to sermons with discerning ears. We are, we are called to act like Bereans. The Apostle Paul was in Berea, and he said this in Acts chapter 17. He says, the people here in Berea, they were of more noble character than those, those knuckleheads in, in Thessalonica. They didn't listen to anything I had to say. These guys are listening. They're receiving the word with eagerness. And they examine the scriptures daily to see if these things that I'm teaching them were so. So, dear friends, if, if you're not examining the scriptures daily, if you're not thinking critically for yourself, in all seriousness, in all seriousness how are you going to know when somebody misquotes or takes something out of context? How are you going to know when they twist scripture for their own benefit and they beat you down with it? How do you know that what I'm teaching you is correct? Unless you yourself are receiving God's word with, with eagerness, right? That you're examining the scriptures daily. You know, we see this, we see all sorts of hermeneutical gymnastics. We see outright heresy every day on social media. So how are you going to know the difference between God's truth and human error unless you're tithing your time with the Lord? Yeah, you know, there, there's just nothing more important, nothing more important than your relationship with Jesus. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, He said, seek first the kingdom of God. First. That's the primary. What's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is Jesus and his righteousness. We are to seek first the kingdom of God. We are to seek Jesus and his righteousness so that we can learn from these temptations that we're studying today. Why would we want to do that? The verse goes on to say, all of these things will be provided for you. What things are those? Well, it's those things that you worry about. It's those things that that we ask at the very beginning of the service, that you lay those things down at the foot of that empty bloodstained cross. Father in heaven, what an amazing narrative. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for teaching us the deception in the second temptation. Thank you for teaching us the importance of, of understanding your word Lord, we, we're just so grateful that you meet us where we are today. And I pray, Lord God, that you would bring 
your word to mind this week when we're tempted. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you would stand, I will give today's benediction. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. And may he be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you guys peace this week. Amen, amen. and amen. Have a great week.